0: Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The word of the Lord.
1: Folks in Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't mean to segue from you to AA. I mean, there's no no connection there, but um, uh, it was in my notes. Sorry. Um, they have a statement that goes something like this: Expectations are premeditated resentments. Expectations are premeditated resentments. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, "Well, I'm not sure I get that one." I mean, isn't that kind of what our faith is? We have certain expectations of God and Jesus based on his character, and isn't that what our hope is based on? Yeah. But when our expectations of life and how God acts don't line up with Scripture, it can create some deep resentment and disillusionment. And as we saw last week, this is what was happening with the two disciples on the Emmaus Road this first Easter Sunday morning they had some expectations of what it was going to look like to follow Jesus. Uh, Down in verse 21, you you get kind of the heart of what they were going through emotionally. He says, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now, uh, that word redeem was very popular in that day. It was a political term, like most Jews living under the Roman boot in Palestine at that time. They thought this was going to be a political revolution They thought they were going to have roles in the cabinet. Uh, They thought the Romans were going to be pushed out by the military. And now all of this has come entirely undone. And so their expectations of what it meant to follow Jesus has been severely challenged over this first Easter weekend. And the stranger now has come up and annoyed them with his questions. And they say, Our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him, shaking their head in disbelief. And what we see going on here is several very important beliefs that they have are all of a sudden being challenged, being turned upside down. Their beliefs about suffering are being challenged. They don't appear to have had any sense that their Messiah should suffer. Their beliefs about redemption were being challenged when the armies didn't show up. Their beliefs about life after death were being challenged. They, they hadn't really thought much about the resurrection yet. And what we're going to see here, and what we started looking at it last week, is that God is allowing their faith to be thoroughly deconstructed so that they can encounter Jesus in a fresh way. That's what this story is about. They are falling apart, but God is in the middle of it, So that they can meet him and his son Jesus Christ. So Jesus finally starts to turn the conversation. He listens and listens. And then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. So so he see, they had some kind of a belief system. Jesus was in it somehow. They had a religion, but they don't really seem to know who he is. They call the Messiah Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in and word before God and all the people. It's kind of a cold, sterile theological description contrasted to how John, the beloved disciple, describes Jesus. They didn't know him that way yet. And so God starts to tear down their faith so that he can replace it with a relationship with the risen Jesus. Now, I think this deconstruction can happen at many levels. Now, imagine for a moment you're raised in a traditional church, and every morning you were there and uh, you learned your faith from Granny Jones' Sunday school class, and she had this flannel graph. I may be dating myself now. I don't know if they make those anymore, but a flannel graph was this cool thing where you'd put the Bible characters in, and they would stick somehow. They had them when when I was a kid. I know that. And for years, that all worked well for you, and your whole faith fit on the flannel graph. And then you went to college or started reading the internet, or went through something like that, and all of a sudden, one by one, you started taking the different characters off of the flannel graph, because now you were smarter than Granny Jones, You read the New York Times. You drink lattes. You know Granny Jones does not know what she's talking about. And now you are no longer a simplistic, judgmental fundamentalist. You are open to doubt and mystery and wary of all things absolute. Congratulations, you are a deconstructed postmodern person. Hallelujah. Now, what we forget is that that's not the goal of faith most of us have to go through that valley. Sometimes, many times. But notice, the story doesn't end with some kind of nihilistic morality play or some kind of existentialist spitting against the dark where Jesus just kind of disappears. No, after they go through this crisis of faith, Jesus leads them into a deeper relationship with himself, and, and I want to be very, very careful here because we've tried to create a culture at All Souls where it's okay to ask hard questions. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to be confused. We don't want to have sentries at the corners of the wall ready to shoot you if you make a theological error. Uh, we've tried to do that, but sometimes I think we almost glorify doubt as the goal of faith. Doubt's okay. Mystery's okay. It's not the goal. The goal is Jesus. And out of your relationship with Jesus, things need to go back on the flannel graph. Now, I have found that the things that are on my flannel graph now are different than the things Granny Jones put there 50 years ago. God rest her soul. But they're there. And they're mine. Because they've come out of my time with Jesus. So... Don't get stuck in verse 24. Things need to go back on the flannel graph. Now, why is it so hard to get from verse 24 to verse 25? Why is it hard to get from that deconstructing to meeting Jesus in a fresh way again? And by the way, I, I, I think this, this kind of questioning can often be a part of the work of midlife, which I think is now starting in the late 20s. <laughs> so maybe it's quarter-life work, I don't know. Richard Roy has written a book called uh, Falling Upward, A Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. This is part of the work of moving from the first half of life to the second half of life, is that when the things that you thought you believed in the first half are no longer working anymore, you've got to have some help coming up with a faith that will sustain you for the second half of life. And my observation is, that you cannot do second-half work, you cannot do the work of reconstruction, you cannot do verses 25 to 27 by reading about it. And even a good service is not enough, as important as those things are, that the way that you get to that place or that fresh encounter with Jesus after you've deconstructed is by a long, slow walk, with a brother or sister, on the way towards Jesus. Now, I mentioned last week that my own understanding of the church is being deconstructed. Uh, When I started seminary in 1984, the things that I assumed church would be like, I think are going to look real different in 2032. And so I've been asking the Lord, okay, what, what are some, wh- where do we go? What does it look like? And I think this story has some really special things in it about what, a, what church looks like. As a matter of fact, Luke wrote it a generation after you know it happened. I think he was actually trying to lay down in sort of a literary metaphorical way what the church could look like. Because what do you've got? You've got fellowship. You've got the preaching of the word. You've got the breaking of the bread. You've got the presence of the risen Christ. You have joy and eyes opening. Sounds like a pretty good church service to me. Now, I, I made this little comment in passing last week that there's this country church that I drive by that had a big sign out in front of it called Slow Church. And it was, it was a, not a comment on the people in the church. It was a comment on drive slowly because you get it. So, but it's become kind of a metaphor for me of the kind of church that helps lead people into intimacy with Christ because that kind of church has people walking together slowly towards Jesus. And Scott went out, Scott Branson went out and stole the sign. Um, there's a story there. I'm not asking where you got it, Scott, but it's here now. Um, and I just wanted to put it up because I think this series is is somewhat about this as well. And I don't know about you. But, but but I find kind of the cadence of this passage, the rhythm of this passage, the slow, patient listening and questioning and probing and teaching and drawing out of this passage in violent contrast to everything about our world. It is so hard to live on the Emmaus Road. But I think doing so is part of what it means to be the church. You know, this past year, I I just wanted to do a little more slow church. And um, actually, this came out of my last retreat in the desert a a little over a year ago. So I came back and I started two groups with some young guys. Got a group on Friday um, with some older guys. Started two groups with some young guys. I, I wish I could do 10 of these with every one of you. It's just been so filled with joy. And so it's one of the richest things that has ever happened to me in ministry. And, and it's essentially, we, we're not studying a book right now. We're just getting together and trying to follow Jesus into intimacy with him. It is, it is just a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. If you've been on this journey for a while, Not fifty years, but if you've been on this journey for a while, would you pray about starting a group like that? I know some of you are doing it. Some of you are thinking, I could never do that. I don't need the curriculum, I don't know the curriculum, I don't know how to do that. Just start walking along the Emmaus Road with some folks a little younger than you. If you're not sure how to do it and you want to do it, meet with me, I'll, I'll teach you how to do it. Folks, we don't have a program that's going to just put you in a computer and spit you out into a group like that. Believe me, I wish we did. I uh, Not really. Because I don't think it's that. If everybody in our church had a brother or sister to walk with on the Emmaus Road towards Jesus, i tell you, I would sleep a lot better. Would some of you please consider doing that Now, maybe you're a little newer, a little younger, you're, 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 kind of, you're, you're, in, you're in need of that. Would you consider asking someone in our body to walk with you? I know that sounds weird in our culture. I mean, we don't do that kind of thing. Uh, get over it. Step up. Don't wait for us to do it for you. Come to some of the things we do outside of the church. Come to the picnic on Ascension Sunday. Come to the other things that we do. Start to look around. Pay attention to your spirit. Look who you're drawn towards and go ask them, can we get coffee? I want to ask you some questions. And when you do and you show up at Panera at 7 in the morning, you come, young person, with a list of questions. You don't come, close your arms, and say, well, let's see if he's a therapist. No, he's not. She's not. Don't make them fish. You come, ask questions, tell them your doubts, see where it goes. I was was thinking this afternoon, I've been your pastor for 14 years. Um, I would love to serve you for 14 more. Uh, Lately, I've been thinking a lot about our future together. I guess that's when when, when, when 60 comes into your sights, you start thinking more about, uh, who's laughing at that? That is not funny. Is not fun. <laughs> oh, it's in your sight, Sue. That's why you're laughing. You start thinking about legacy and what uh, what kind of church do we want to? Well, I'll just say it. Like I think about this. Where do I want you all to be when I'm gone? I think about that all the time. Um, and, yeah, there's some things, you know, we've talked about. I'd, I'd, if we could find a property that we could afford that was ours, I'd love that. don't have one for you now, but I'd love that. I'd love to see us grow in our capacity of seeking the peace of the city and be more informed and strategic and collaborative. I'd love to see us, something a phrase Trevetta loves, become a school for Christ, be more intentional in the classes that we offer and our practices of spiritual formation. But Ray Kilarowski, one of the guys that I walk with on the Emmaus Road, said something very important to me at breakfast. We were talking about succession planning and how, how the companies he's a part of do it. And he said, you know, that's all good, Doug, but the single most important thing you can do to prepare an organization for its future is invest in people. The single most important thing you can do is invest in people. So I very much want all those other things But more than anything, I want everybody in this room to have somebody they're walking with on the Emmaus Road. Hmm. There's something more there. Um, That's enough for now. So, this work of deconstruction is... Is not all theological or doctrinal. That's part of it. Um, there's an, another part, and a lot of this happens in midlife, but as I said, a lot of you are hitting midlife at 28. Um, I hope it's quarter life. Uh, is that the illusions of the first part start to fall away to prepare you for a fresh vision. And that's why when I went through a midlife crisis at 41 and I went into a therapist and I started to work on it, He said, I was very depressed. He said, congratulations, depression's a gift. Because it shows you that the stuff you believed wasn't working. Well, this past year, a lot of us have been talking about the Enneagram. And the Enneagram is a a tool that helps you determine your personality type and lead you back to God. And I was kind of skeptical about it at first. I've had a a lot of experience with these things over the years, and uh, I'm a little wary of typology. People tend to find out their type and say, well, I'm an INFJ, you know, get over it, deal with me. Um, I don't think that's helpful. I think these things can be an excuse for not changing. Uh, I think these kind of things can be kind of a navel-gazing parlor game. You know, know, well, I'm a Cocker Spaniel, what kind of puppy are you? And, you know, I don't know how how helpful that is. I also was concerned about how compatible the Enneagram was with Christian spirituality because some of the things that I'd read early on years ago, I wasn't sure that it synced up very well. Well, I don't believe that anymore. Um, A friend suggested that I take the sacred Enneagram book with me on my retreat in the desert. Mark, hold on, it's okay, we'll talk about this. (laughs) Not all of us agree. (laughs) And I spent all day Thursday reading and and praying uh, through the book, and it was the best day of my retreat. And instead of trendy psychobabble, I found the author's explanation of the tool very rooted in ancient Christian wisdom and in Scripture, and I found it helping me love my wife and Mark better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the thing that I like the most about the Enneagram is that it helped me deepen my awareness of my own sin. And I've never found that happen in any other tool like this, and it clarified what my own redemption might look like. When I, when I got home, I read a book by Ian Crone called The Road Back to You, and that was helpful too. Now, Enneagram teachers say there are nine basic types and they talk a lot about their strengths and weaknesses. And if we could put up this uh, uh, graph there, one of the things that the sacred enneagram talks about is, yeah, you're made a certain way, but you go through life and you get hurt and you respond out of sin. You develop sinful ways to relate to the world, and you also come up with a wounded message, kind of a narrative or a personal mantra that you go through life with. And part of redemption, part of the Spirit's work in our lives is exposing these and replacing them with biblical truth. Now, uh, it doesn't matter if you, you know the types or anything like that, but I thought this was a good illustration. Type number one, it's not okay to make mistakes. That's what you learned as a kid. Type number two, I'm type number two by the way, the helper. Uh, the books all say that Jesus was a two, which is no surprise to me. Um, the ty- <laughs> type number three it's not okay to have your own identity and emotions. Type number four it's not okay to be too functional or too happy. Type five it's not okay to be too comfortable in the world. Type six it's not okay to trust yourself. Type seven it's not okay to depend on anyone for anything. Type eight it's not okay to be vulnerable or trust anyone. Type 9, it's not okay to assert yourself. Well, I was reading that and I was just praying, Lord, you know, can you help me understand some of the wrong beliefs that I have about life, some of the ways I'm protecting myself in response to sin? And a memory came back. I was in third grade and it was the end of the school picnic and we were uh, in a playground. And we're all playing. It was one of those day-long picks. I don't think they have this. It's not a merry ground but it was this-, this circle thing that you would push, and kids would jump on, and you'd go real fast. And I suspect it killed a bunch of kids, and they took it away. From- <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. You, know, you young people, you missed out, because all that dangerous stuff was a lot of fun. But we- so I-, I-, I was the guy that was pushing it, and the other kids in my class would hop on. And one of the teachers said, my, look at Doug. He's pushing all the other children. For the next several hours, I pushed the merry-go-round and never got on it. Because I figured out, this feels kind of good. When I help people, my teacher notices. And so I went into the ministry. Um, (laughs) No, it's not that simple, but... I did learn I did learn something that day that I can kind of make myself feel good by helping you. And there are some good things to that, of course, but the shadow side is that I can also become kind of spiritually codependent on you. And if you don't pay me back for everything I do for you so Christianly, I can passive-aggressively go after you, and believe me, I'm an expert at it. So, you know, twos love to be on the helping side. We're not very good about knowing our own needs, when to say no or not burning out. By the way, the church is to a two as a bar is to an alcoholic. So, in the desert... When I started to to read this stuff, God started to deconstruct this shadow side of me and move me towards deep repentance. Actually, I've had to be careful because it's so, I feel so exposed. And, you know, that it almost, I I found myself, why are you going to get up there tonight? You just want him to love you. And you'll be mad at the four people that didn't come. You know, you can go down a rabbit hole with it. But it's very hopeful work too. Because it's showing me the beauty of how God made me and it's giving me a new vision for what happens when I embrace it. Now, I think this brings it back to slow church. Um, how how do you how do you really dig up some of these deeper Messages that you've been believing your whole life, and expose them, and repent of them, and embrace what God says. How do you do that work? Believe me, I guarantee you, you will never hear me say, "If God gives me 14 more years, ah, we don't need a worship service anymore." Guarantee it. I believe in everything we do here on Sunday nights. Very, very important. It's not enough. It sets the stage. It's not enough. The Emmaus walk is where the work really happens. When you are close enough to somebody that when I call and leave a voicemail and say, hey, brother, I was just thinking about you. You were on my mind. How you doing? I love you. Have I encouraged you lately? (laughs) They call me back and say, why are you fishing for a compliment? What's up with that? When we can get to that level of depth and intimacy and speaking into one another's lives, I think that's where we move towards intimacy with Christ. The corporate is so, 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 so important, but it's not enough. And I know there's there's an idea today that having a beer with your buddy on the porch is really the essence of, of Christian fellowship. Beloved, it's not true. I like beer. I like porches. I like fellowship. That's not being intentional. And if that's what your Christian walk looks like, is a couple of brews with the bros, ain't enough. You're fooling yourself. I swim with a guy on Friday morning. He just looked terrible. I said, what happened? He said, I ran Boston. I didn't know, but, you know, was, I think the coldest marathon on record 22 degree wind chill, and he he said uh, I just I saw the weather I didn't prepare I, you know I didn't wear the right clothing and it just, he said it was hellish, and I thought, how many of us are trying to run the marathon of the Christian race the same way? We're just having a few beers on the porch and think it's all going to work out. I don't need all this institutional Christianity stuff. That's for Granny Jones. Pop a cold one for me. Come on, beloved, you're clueless if you think that's going anywhere. (laughs) I'm not against a beer. I'm against kind of a wimpy, wussy spirituality that thinks you don't have to work at this thing to grow. Come on, you're better than that. It's not true. Tell your friends, it's not true. Whatever is new about what's emerging in the kingdom of God, it's not that. Well, let's end with this. There are a lot of ways we can walk together on the road to Emmaus. You don't need a degree. You don't need to be credentialed. There's a lot of ways to do this, and if you look at the history of the slow church, it's always normal people pouring into each other. But I do want to say this. There's a unique ministry in the body of Christ called spiritual direction. A spiritual director is not a therapist or a mentor but someone who just helps you pay attention to what God is doing in your life, especially through prayer. A spiritual director is particularly important during the crisis of faith. And they're especially important when you try to move from the first half to the second half of life. Now, I'm wary of talking about this and have not wanted to talk about it because it sounds like there's some sort of 80-year-old Gray haired person who's about to be canonized by the Vatican, and none of us are there, and so none of us will do it. And in our congregation, we've had two very powerful spiritual directors, Mary Tarwater, Suzanne Hassel, both of them passed away. They were very saintly, and most of us feel like, well, I could never do that. Okay, fine. However, I do think God calls some of us to a unique role of caring for souls in that way. Yeah, there's some training that you can get for that, true, but I think it's something the Spirit equips you for and the Spirit walks you into. And I'm convinced that any slow church that makes the Emmaus walk well has a bevy of uh, spiritual directors in it. Increasingly, this is what I do as your pastor, more and more spiritual direction. Uh, Debbie Wright has gotten some training and works as a spiritual director. Trevetta Johnson is doing some spiritual direction work. I think a lot of you don't call it that, but you are doing that work. And and what I want to say is if some of you are waiting for Mary and Suzanne to come back, they ain't coming back. And if some of you are waiting another 15 years until you're ready, you don't know if you've got 15 years. All you have to do to help someone else is to love them, be committed to them, and maybe be just a hair's width further down the road than them. So with some of you that are kind of sitting back and just wishing that some godly saint would come alongside and pour into your soul and help you make the walk to Emmaus, Would you become that person? Would you stop waiting? Would you become that person for someone else? Let's pray.